All right. Welcome, everybody, to another special Mutations episode. I am joined by John Anderson. Uh, one more evening together before you're on your way. Yes. Cracking open uh, evening libations. I'm uh, not enjoying something as nice as you are, but cheers anyway. We are, we are toasting. To yellow cans. To yellow cans. We both are holding yellow cans right now for a visual. And uh, we wanted to do a spooky season podcast, a special edition mutations episode, uh, getting into the spirit of this season, telling some spooky stories, talking about the weird and the eerie, uh, perhaps talking a little bit about living ghosts and other such things. Uh, what, what does an animus do uh, for a season like this? Uh, what makes it special? But yeah, welcome, John. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. So where to begin? Um, I think you had some questions for me, like right out, right off the bat. I, so you I could do. you could just open up with that. Um, so Mark Fisher, the philosopher Mark Fisher, mentions a few concepts which I think would be uh, interesting to bring out and maybe interesting to clarify uh, in relation to um, the broader subject matter we might be covering tonight. So um, I kind of want to know what's eerie, uh, what's weird, and um, not necessarily Fisher, but also philosophical in a lot of ways. What is spooky? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So what you got? All right. What's Fisher got? Well, what's Fisher got? Because Fisher is giving us some structure here. Uh, but this is actually from a book that I was pulling out to talk about Revelor and talk about book publishing and typography. Ended up being, Revelor. Yeah. Revelor Press, represent. Um, and ended up uh, being completely appropriate for the podcast we wanted to record. But uh, according to Mark Fisher's The Weird and the Eerie, he defines, first of all, the weird as this. The weird and the eerie make the opposite move. Uh, they allow us to see the inside from the perspective of the outside. As we shall see, the weird is that which does not belong. The weird brings to the familiar something which ordinarily lies beyond it and which cannot be reconciled with the homely, even as its negation. So it's kind of the idea of the strange familiar or the familiar strange, right? Taking something that we should know and know well and it, it, it appears in a different light. It doesn't do what it's supposed to be doing. The eerie, on the other hand, is how he defines it here. The eerie concerns the most fundamental metaphysical questions one could pose, questions to do with existence and non-existence. Why is there something here when there should be nothing? Why is there nothing here when there should be something? The unseeing eyes of the dead, the bewildered eyes of an amnesiac. These provoke a sense of the eerie, just as surely as an abandoned village or a, sto a stone circle do. So yeah, the, the eerie has more of the sense of... Um, Again, we were talking about that earlier. Presence of absence or an absence of presence, mm -hmm. where it, it, there's something missing, and but there should be something there, or there's nothing here, but it feels like something is here. There is a presence here where there shouldn't be. So a bit more of that play of presence and absence with eerie, and a bit more of the something appearing the way it should be, but also it's quite not with the weird, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're having an experience some, of something you've had happen before, but this time. Maybe it's gone just a little bit awry mm -hmm. in a way that uh, brings your hackles up just a little bit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you, you, third, the third question, right, was the spooky. Right? 
make something spooky. I, I, mm. I, that, that's a trickier one. Um, well, here, since this is not Fisher's work, what I mean is uh, spooky in the sense of entangled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As in spooky entanglement, this sort of broader physics type of spookiness. What's that? Mm. What do you think that is? Well, uh, for me, th- that kind of goes into the Jeffrey Kripal territory. Uh, I don't know if you've read his book, The Flip, about scientists that experience something that breaks down the laws of physics as they understand it, the secular spatial world as they understand it. And, mm-hmm. Um, the entanglement of the subjective and the and the objective or what we are perceiving as something that's deeply personal and meaningful in our own psyche, in our own hearts, and then it shows up in the material world somehow. Mm-hmm. So there's a weird kind of spillage between the inner and the outer that I, that I associate anyway with that kind of mm-hmm. definition of spooky entanglement, you know, meaningful coincidence like synchronicity that Jung and mm-hmm. uh, Wolfgang Pauli talked about. Um, that, that's what comes up for me immediately. I'm kind of curious for you. Uh, for me, spooky is often something that comes about where two things that are not directly related mm-hmm. show up as being related. So you could say synchronicities. That's that's one manifestation of that. Uh, but for me, if something is entangled in a spooky way, I also sort of feel there is an eeriness to it. Mm-hmm. So, so a good synchronicity makes your hair stand on it, right? Yeah. A, a real deep synchronicity makes you feel like something just shifted a couple of degrees over, uh, or maybe you just dipped into a you know a slipstream timeline for, for mm-hmm. a second or two. So, I, I have a, a sort of non-local view of, of of that as also being or also having the quality of being eerie or or weird Mm -hmm. interesting interesting yeah the the non-local quality of that um and then there's this whole like in fisher's definition i know he's talking more about the weird and the eerie in the context of capitalist realism you Mm -hmm. know and and the eeriness of that or um one of the other topics we were thinking about touching on was like hauntology Right. Oh, let's kind of get to that. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, we, we could circle around to that if we want to uh, sooner than later. But but that there's a sense of the eerie in that as well, right? The presence of absence, the absence of presence, but a past that's still kind of lingering, even though it's sort of... It never came to be, but it's still hanging around a little right, bit. Right, right. Right. That kind of sense of um, a canceled future, which even though it never lived, is nevertheless a kind of ghost. Sure that haunts the landscape. Sure. These are more of like, again, cultural, um, a kind of cultural phenomenology of late capitalism, and it's mm-hmm. used that way. And right. Perhaps not as, as an animist might use it, but I feel like... Uh, I, I bet you there's a bit of, bit of overlap there. I bet yeah. you there's some some wiggle room. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to touch on with you too about that. Like, you know, what is an animist take on capitalist realism and topics like ontology? You know, the, the, there's a sort of how exactly to put it, there's a kind of general gestalt with capitalist realism and like the hauntology of malls, right? Like a kind of canceled oh, landscape yeah, of the yeah, 80s yeah, and yeah. 90s. Um, but in, in some weird ways, in weird ways, appropriately, uh, there's a sense of place, right? There's an aesthetic mm. sense, there's a music sense, like in terms of like 
the kinds of environments that malls have been up until recently and uh, the feeling of a particular decade, like the late or mid nineties that had places like this. And then a sense of that being sort of receded from time, but still lingering somehow in, in the, in the, uh, how exactly would we put it? Um, the ether of, of, uh, of the suburbs. Right. So, yeah, I mean, is, is there an animus take on, on hauntology that might speak a little bit to that sense of spookiness? Well, I will tell you, right, that I recently, uh, within the last couple of months, I had the occasion to go to one of the, the, uh, one of the malls in, in my area, which is uh, the southwestern part of Florida. And... I used to inhabit it as a kid. I used to I used to frequent it, and it used to be a very thriving place. This was the place that you went to go do the things and um, meet people and see and be seen, um, and and generally get out of your parents' hair for a while. And I went there and I saw families there, and I saw teens there, and I saw folks shopping and spending money and doing all of the things that we would do at a mall when I was younger. And um, it, it felt like an echo. Mm. There was just a, just this very strange, again, slipstream quality to it. Uh, and, you know, I moved slowly through the world. This is my general way of being. Uh, and, and this was odd, not because, you know, the, the stores certainly were not the same. There were maybe uh, one or two stores from, from that I remember when I was younger. But most of them have come and gone, you know, several times over at this point. Uh, but this place became like a repository for, for uh, a shell of capitalism. Because mm. there were stores there and they were certainly selling material. But it wasn't thriving. It wasn't thrumming. It wasn't... Um, particularly busy where it used to be that the place like that would, would be um, quite crowded. And, you know, now a lot of the joke is that you go there in the morning and you'll see, you know, senior citizens on their, on their morning walk around the mall and they'll make a circuit four times around and then they, they head out for the day. And it felt like that, except it was the middle of the day and it was families, you know, with, you know, parents and children, you know, just kind of milling around and there were people kind of sitting and it was, it was, they seemed, some of them seemed quite bewildered. So it seemed just, again, weird to me. Mm -hmm. um, in an animist sense, I suppose that a place like that can be taken as, you know, a repository for my memories and any countless number of uh, teenagers and, and adolescents mm. that might be going through it. And the people that are there now are maybe swimming through the remnants of whatever that was. Um, there's also a, a quality of it that it just won't let it die mm -hmm. until there is enough of something else to go and take over that space. Um, meaning that, you know, maybe a school comes in and, and, Buys the buys or rents the space and mm -hmm. uses some of it for schools. In fact, that was the case for this mall. There was uh, at least one school in it, 
uh, right? So the space gets re reappropriated or reused in a certain way. Uh, but it still has that like kind of repository for, um, you know, a certain kind of consumption that malls are very good at. Mm. Um, and this may not be the case with some of the larger ones. The Mall of America may be very different. This was a very local mall that, that it was in, you know, and when I was younger, this was the only place to go to in my town. So this was where you went. Uh, so this also leads you to a different place too. If it's the only place you go, it's the, it is the place for memories to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a, I guess a certain quality to it in terms of capitalism that is still, you know, it's still consumerism, but it's, it's a, a sad consumerism in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, the things are still being, you know, bought and you know, all the things are there and people are still buying this, that, and the next, but uh, this is not how we tend to do things anymore. So again, it sort of seems antiquated at the same time. Right, right. Um, yeah, there's um, that 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 sense of well, the way you're describing it, if this is the only place in town you go to, this has replaced uh, like the village square. Mm-hmm. Like there's a there's a kind of intensity of human emotion experience, right? That really has that place because of the way our society was structured in the late 20th century would be where all of that aggregates over time. You know, I mean, we talk about this, you know, folks who go ghost hunting and you know they go to a particular place oh this was a restaurant for 80 years so lots of memories and impressions are here i mean you get the same kind of idea at a mall you know not that long 20 30 40 years maybe but nevertheless that's that's really something that's a generation or two of folks that are using that space um and associating it with everything that people do in a public space when they're socializing and going on dates and having bad days and all that kind of stuff so yeah, all of those layers of memory and experience kind of accrue in that particular place and under that context of um, consumerism, right? Uh, mm. it's, it's not exactly the same as a, a town square, a pre-industrial village square or anything like that, but right. people are still using it for that sociability. So, but a shell of that, no less. Yeah. It's not even the, the deeply intrinsic uh, consumerism as, that it used to be because that was the place you mm-hmm. went to get all the things now you can click on something on amazon and it comes to your door you don't have to do any of that any of that sort of social maneuvering or or being in space with other people uh yeah it's it's a very different feel it's a different feel and then there's like a few layers too because every few decades there's something that supplants the old the older structure of capitalism, mm. right? So in Walter Benjamin's time, he was talking about the arcades and, and, and how that was a kind of step down from you know previous lifestyles in terms of like capturing the world um, you know at a, at a glance through the window you know in the old structure of the arcades. But now we have malls that are really doing that in a sort of superstructure way. Mm-hmm. Um, and now those are canceled, right? Those are gone. And now we have Amazon, as you were saying. And so like now we can do it through our computers and look through the glass of the computer to kind of perceive the objects that we desire. So even that's sort of a step down. I don't know where I'm going with that other than kind of seeing there's that there's kind of that intensification of capital, the loss of um, public spaces, right? So, so even in that sense, there, there's a, um, 
the lingering of the mall is, is weird because the mall was already at like a sort of diminishment of human beings socializing with one another. Right? Yeah. In, in, or in so we thought in comparison. in comparison, relatively speaking. Um, and it hasn't exactly been replaced by anything better, obviously, with, with Amazon, etc. Um, For a while, there was the movement toward the, the outdoor pedestrian malls where people would gather in mm. sort of more common spaces. But, you know, we, you and I live in Florida where it is very hot most of the year. And uh, again, I've lived very near you know, several of those places now. And generally, you know, people would drive from one, one corner of it to the next mm-hmm. so that they didn't have to walk. So that sort of canceled the the point of the of the pedestrian mall. Mm-hmm. Yes, you could walk from one side of it, and it covered a lot of ground, and it was outside, but no one ever did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So meandering from the topic of spooky malls. Well, one one more element to that though. Um, and that is the way in which our in our social imagination, the mall has now become, um, in, in an imaginal sense, this place of longing and nostalgia, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think only happened after the, they started to get shuttered. Certainly. And the kind of romanticization of the mall in films and movies like or shows like Stranger Things, for instance, there's a whole season where mm-hmm. it's like plays up in a hyper vivid sort of way, the experience of the 80s mall. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think that's another element here that, that somehow loops back to the physical place, right. To create that experience of, uh, the eerie in the sense of like, oh, this used to be filled with people and now it's not, but somehow they're still present. Like the presence of absence, the absence mm-hmm. of presence is playing out in a kind of Fisher way. Uh, but I, but again, because of that nostalgia, that cultural memory, which is now like suffusing the image of the mall with a new kind of ghostly life uh in the present i think so yeah there is there is such a thing as having nostalgia for a place that you've never interacted with or or engaged with or or even fit your own generation and here i don't mean the the allure of the ren fair or you know renaissance festival or anything like that I mean, as a, as a place that you can still go to that is sort of somewhat permeable mm-hmm. and still changing somehow, there is a nostalgia for that. And, and our culture, you know, brings that on, our media brings that on. Stranger Things is a great example of that. Uh, and I think that's part of just the, like you said earlier, the hauntology of it. There is a, there is this uh, want for, you know, a future that we didn't have or maybe ran its course, but where is the thing? I want to get back to that. Um, and I kind of wonder if eventually the the enclosed mall will make a resurgence or a reappearance. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the schools being there. They're still around, obviously. So something's being done, but the the space of it and therefore the energy of it is being repurposed in some way uh, I, I just find that idea fascinating I, mm. I think you and i spoke about a certain nostalgia for an era of new york city that neither one of us got a chance to participate in and it's not you know i don't have a sense of it as a oh this was me in a past life or 
or anything of that sort but but there's a there's something of a remembrance of a thing that I never did mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah there's um this this loops back into our previous conversation on temporics in some ways and there's in a lot of ways temporics can be very entangled with the weird and the eerie for various reasons the presence of absence absence of presence uh how are those things well i mean (laughs) (laughs) this is a good example right neither of us have experienced new york in let's say the 1970s like mid 1970s like manhattan as adults running around uh with the graffiti on the like the kinds of aesthetics that we see associated from that time andy warhol sort of time going into the 80s a little bit um and yet there there is a sense in in an almost kind of social imagination of the place like we feel a longing to go connect there like it it comes it comes to life in our imagination in our kind of dreaming um of new york as a kind of virtual place right in time Mm -hmm. and i've had i've had interesting dreams too where like i'm walking around in new york city in like the early 80s -hmm. i had a very strange fairy-like dream of that and where i was very trepidatious to eat the food of that time because i wow, thought maybe if okay. i eat the food i'll be stuck in like yeah, 1982 oh man. oh man um so so just bringing that up in that sense of yeah the imaginal entanglement that we seem to have with place that we don't have to necessarily experience it as um you know in waking life in order to appreciate something about that time and i think there's something real about that imaginal new york city of the 1970s and 80s that even the folks who lived through it might also kind of pine for in the nostalgia sense that we do with the malls in, in the nineties, you know, mm. and this is something JF Martel brought up um, in a podcast we did a few years ago now uh, where he's talking about, there's a particular, like and something Deleuze talks about with uh, the event as a virtual thing that let's say like the social movements in the 1960s, right? There was, there was a, a kind of fever in the air of the 60s that those who were in it may have felt but then it's really only after it's done after you move on from that Mm. time period that you look back and kind of have a distinct uh sense that there was there was something in the climate of that time that everyone was suffused with there was a feeling of possibility in that time and now that we're not in it anymore that we can we can actually identify it but when you're in the middle of it when you're thick of it it's harder it's harder to see the virtual dimensions of that that time, that decade, right? Whether it's aesthetic or just kind of a feeling, right? So then you begin, again, going back to it, you, you end up knowing it by definition by by it not being there. Yeah, by its by its eerie by absence. Its, by its absence. Yeah, and that's so interesting. And that's where the temporics comes in, where, um, you know, it's, it's, this is brought up more in, like, revolutionary leftist thought, right? With Walter Benjamin and Chironic time, that time isn't linear and that, the kind of um, energy that suffused the 60s or suffused a particular moment of revolutionary history can be resurrected, right? Let, can be seized once again at a particular op- uh, open moment of time, right? That, that time is a much more plastic thing. And that the same event that's happening in the 60s is also happening in other contexts or can happen again and again. So it's it's more in the, of that Gibsarian sense of... Uh, uh, the, well, he says that poetry is the history of the dateless. You know, there's a sense in which it participates in history, and yet it's not really chronological either. And but it erupts as as a moment, as a feeling of a particular moment, which may erupt again and again and again across different moments in time. 
chronological but that, time. But that feeling itself is not going to be necessarily the same. Never the um, same, but I mean, it'll have similar. Yeah, some element. Similar timbre, but it's but its tune will not quite mm-hmm. be exactly the same thing. Yes. Sure. Yes. So, so in some ways, I kind of wonder. No, it's not revolution. <laughs> Pining for the nostalgia of the mall is certainly not a revolutionary, chironic moment. But there's still an imaginal sense to it being real that we like plug into it and, and to some degree try to resurrect it through our media, right? So, well, I mean, I have to say that when I when I went there a few months back, uh, I didn't want that. I remember I had certain memories of mm-hmm. of things that happened in that space, but I had moved into a different space myself, so mm-hmm. I didn't have a nostalgia for. I just I I saw the echoes that were there of the things that I had gone through. You know, I I was moving through echo spaces where mm-hmm. uh, I, I wasn't looking forward to reliving that. I never really uh, had a sense of that at all. But but that I would go, oh yes, I sort of remember. You know, some of the the uh, you know echoes of what this place was. Mm-hmm. And I can get to that feeling of it, but it wasn't, it wasn't nostalgia in the same sense of, of like, man, I really wish I were back there in that place, or I want to belong there to that place again. Or I know what you mean? I, I don't, I don't really experience that with, um, with like, uh, especially like the 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 dead mall kind of stuff, and then the the '90s kind of stuff. Maybe to some degree. Uh, it's associated with early internet things uh, there'll be a sense of you know childhood memories or associations with like mm. the internet in the 90s computers and video games in the 90s sure like i'll give you i'll grant you kind of positive association but it's not a it's not a longing to retreat back into right. it and i think for some people um i mean this is like what grafton tanner talks about in some of his work on on vaporwave and, and this kind of uh, ontological media but um, a lot of folks, especially the folks on the left, interpret this as like, well, this is this is nostalgia for a pre nine eleven world, right? Before things started to really unravel in a, in a noticeable way, where there was still a sense of the future back then, right? Like in in the nineties, there was a sense that uh, we were still going somewhere. We still had a, a kind of unfolding of history going on, and post nine eleven climate crisis, the economic crises, both like in a material sense and also in a more of an existential cultural sense, there's less of a sense of, um, there's a sense of spiritual exhaustion, right? Mm-hmm. In, in terms of where we're headed as a civilization. And so I, and I get that as like a overall sense of maybe that's why some people are nostalgic for the nineties is really the last wave of, um, kind of pseudo optimism, right? Mm-hmm. The whole you know, the end of history kind of Fukuyama thing where like, we figured shit out, we're building malls, the Soviet Union collapsed, we're going to be in space, we're going to go explore the cosmos as capitalists. Um, that was the kind of last wave of, of, of a kind of enthusiasm for that sort of future. Um, so I get it in, in that sense, in more of that sociological sense, but I haven't personally experienced hauntology as particularly nostalgic. Sure. Um I think it depends on where where you are in yourself as to how you will experience that mm-hmm. that kind of movement. Uh, again, I I have nostalgia for places that I 
I haven't been. You know, I have sort of a nostalgia for time that I haven't been to. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't necessarily have nostalgia for, um, you know, the mid-90s malt scene. I, I can, again, if I were to go there, I can feel the echoes of that in a certain way. And it is hauntological. But here, nostalgia is, is a sort of a different... It's now it's out of time, yeah. um, whereas hauntological tends to be sort of out of feeling, you know, out of touch mm. in some way. Yeah, there's another way that you can view that. Like, I don't want to use the po word term post capital, but I'm going to. Um, there is a, a sort of being a time being you'll find in some cultures that uh, is a basically a spirit of consumption um, we find uh, something like it in the um, the windigo right the mm. spirit of the northern Native American groups but in in the way that I mean this spirit it is literally the spirit of of consumption itself. Uh, it is called, uh, the term is vatico. Mm -hmm. You'll find it in a couple of different um, native groups in, in America. And, and it is this idea that it is consumption embodied. And because it is consumptive, it must find new grounds to inhabit or new spaces to, to, form itself into because it's also consuming itself it's uh it's an ouroboros with uh with an anger issue i guess <laughs> um and no no particular want to to evolve um and we have this idea of of a consuming spirit for the sake of consuming and so there is something of this part of it too like where you just keep Re, re, uh, reforming the shell of it so that it can eat again or have, you know, have more some things to work with. And we're subject to it as human beings. Hmm. We're, we're affected by those spaces in that way. Um, even if we never see the thing, it is there. So there is this idea of consumerism that is, isn't going to go away. Sure. Um, the mall has become Amazon and Amazon is you know, it is a, you know, it is its own force. It has its own gravity. So um, this kind of consumption still has its own gravity and we'll find it that way. I mean, that brings up a <laughs> the larger question, which we probably won't be able to get into tonight. But uh, in, in Mark Fisher's posthumously published, uh, literally is called, I think, literally called post-capitalist desire. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the kind of question that he's asking Um when he's looking to Spinoza and he's looking to psychedelics of the sixties and the counterculture to really explore this question of how do we work with capitalist desire to produce um, uh, a deeper desire that is more significant and fulfilling, like not saying, not denying that the, the vices of capital, right? The, the creation of consume, the consumer is something that we should avoid or chastise, but to work with it because it's, it's utilizing some aspect of the human being uh, that is hungry, right? That is unfulfilled to 
satiate that with something more like sugar, something that's not really great for you, but you know, nevertheless will be filling. So how do you work with that kind of desire um, to give you actually something you need, like actual medicine, right? So that's sort of the question he was playing with in, in that particular book in those lectures, which is how do we work with desire to create a sort of exit strategy from that kind of dynamic, the Ouroboros of, of, of capital consuming itself? How do we actually work with that, uh, that, that desire to transmute that same desire into something more substantive? You know, it's a tricky question. I don't know if he necessarily answered it in that book, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that there is a great answer for that, really. Um, this is the space where each of us must work with our own um, potentials, our own energies, our own um, spirits in a certain way to make sure that they, they don't transmute into or, or perhaps succumb to mm -hmm. that pull toward consumption externally or self-consumption internally. Mm -hmm. This is a really tricky thing. Um, my my traditions, my, my uh, studies have, have given some outlets, but it's not, you know, Taoist religious practice, Buddhist religious practice is not an answer for everyone. Um, and certainly not broader sociological issues and, and um, consumerist issues. Uh, so I, I don't have an answer for people writ large. Uh, um, you maybe as an individual learn to turn the dial down from, you know, nine to eight, mm -hmm. and then maybe by degrees from eight to seven and a half. Um, and you learn to sit with the things that you do have and find new use for them mm. so that you do not need another thing to do that thing or another thing to do that thing. Yeah, there's, um, this, this ties in again to our last conversation on, on the climate crisis, because in some ways we're already living in a, in a, a canceled future. We're already in the husk of, of, uh, this late capitalist civilization that is acting as if it will continue on. Yeah without any kind of hindrance unabated or ad infinitum how many years right like i mean this is this is their ideology still even facing the kind of material and climatological crises that are already facing us mm -hmm. so we're already living in a, in a kind of dead mall <laughs> as a civilization sure. so there's a kind of ghostliness to to everyday life that is also sort of present here um, what do we do with the hauntologies that are coming up in the next 50 years yeah Right, like there's a latent, we're already latently hauntological as sure. a civilization. Sure. It's like it's like living there, in the last few years an, of Atlantis. There's an incipient hauntology that is um, already already at play, but not fully formed yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sorry to be such a uh, we're go we're going for the spooks and we're going into into climate grief to some degree. Well, but <laughs> I consider this spooky to some extent. Yeah. Right? We're, we are in the middle of this. Sure, we, sure. we are subject to the energy of it. And, and we as individuals must find our own little pocket from which to, to work with it or, or accept it or not. 
certainly. Uh, I, I, I do find it spooky. I do find it weird. I do find it all eerie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's, it's not that far off. So yeah, there's a weird way in which um, the absence of presence, the presence of absence, and there, there's something a little bit different in in what we're talking about here. Though I, th I think it's still playing with that oscillation of uh, uh, living as if we are continuing as if we are still uh, a civilization with the future. Right there, there's a presence of absence is an absence of presence in that in that sense that like the end we already see that the end coming right existentially we know this is done as, as in terms of what our civilization has been doing and so there's already an absence in it there's always there's a kind of hollowness in it um and i i think as as a whole our culture is beginning to really get gnawed at by that sense of absence right that sure. sense of like there's no real way we're gonna get past this and remain intact right just even asking each other about the weather like I, i've been writing about in some of my recent essays like you can't ask someone about the weather without all of this kind of getting entangled in it um so yes there, there's a strange presence of the future in a spooky way here that we're talking about a future that a that we don't exist in in terms of this civilization um and then b it, it makes us quite ghostly in the present and in this case, I think then there is an absence of not presence, but the present. Right. Yeah. We yeah. have trouble sitting where we are. We find this very uncomfortable. Most of us do. Um, this is why most of us can't sit in a quiet room for very long. Mm -hmm. um, we, most of us need some sort of extra stimulation, which, which provides um, enough white noise so that we don't have to think about deeper deeper structures within us or or just to sit with ourselves mm. and this is a hard thing to to face up to how you are when no one else is looking mm. Mm. and and see that right there's um, another element here too which is if we are learning to become present again as we talked about in the last uh recording there's so much in the present that wants to speak, uh, like like the the quote that Gebster has about an ever present origin that I use all the time for all sorts of different contexts. But the Holderlin quote about uh, one god after another is is coming home, therefore be present. There's a sense of you know, storms washing up on the shore. There's a sense in, in which as civilization and the supply chain and all the stuff that everyone's worried about presently start to recede the animus landscape resurges, right? All of those wounds, all of those severings from our relationship with place like, mm -hmm. are roaring back. So there's a lot of ghosts there and there's a lot of gods there too that are oh, suddenly indeed. vying for our attention if we were actually to be present right now. Well, that, that as well. But if you take a purely animus standpoint, you have to ask what are those ontologies that the gods might be experiencing? <laughs> That's a good question. Right. This is this is this is sort of you know weird meta meta weird stuff. But if you take that stance, you know it isn't just that the weather is shitty or that the you know hurricanes are increasing in size or whatever. Um, but you you have to ask if if certain beings are coming back into into focus or or they're not even returning. They 
they're there, they've been there. But what then futures did they, were they expecting that now they must uh, um, work with? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is an interesting question, I suppose. Yeah, it is. And, and um, <laughs> in some ways, I think maybe some of the gods are actually getting a, a second chance in, in the sense that a lot of them have kind of fallen by the wayside. And with the return of relationship with place, there's a, a potential renewal, regeneration of those relationships in, in, in novel ways. Um, certainly, I think in our circles, there's, there's a resurgence of a lot of polytheistic and animistic um, yeah, sure. archetypal presences. So, so there's that, right? But then, yeah, I don't know. What are the gods that are getting their, the gods of capital that sure. are losing their futures, right? Their futures are being canceled right now. I don't think and, that they are. I think they're going to run themselves into the ground. <laughs> I think that is the nature of it. Uh, I don't think that the, those kind of structures are, are going to necessarily go away. Mm -hmm. um, again, the best that human beings can do is this really small beings as in, you know, small groups of human beings. We can do small work. Mm -hmm. um, you and I are not going to change Wall Street or the, the entities which inhabit it mm -hmm. or utilize it. Um, or the, the deeper structures which cause it to move in the way that it does. We can, you know, we're subject to it, we're in the middle of it. Uh, we can have some bit of influence on very small scales. And this is where we must work. We, we try to even work at medium scale, scales. Most of us don't know how to do that. Most of us don't have the inner relation, the relationship to do that. So the best that most of us can do is very small, even local um, work. You work with the folks on your block. You work with uh, people in your town or your city, right? This is the best that most of us can do. And it's, it's sort of a, a trap in a lot of ways to always think on this sort of larger grander scale sure we're already in the global milieu we don't have a, a kind of a choice on that uh save for a, a living on a mountaintop perhaps at least for a little while that won't matter but uh, most of us only have a, a sphere of influence that you know runs adjacent to where we work and our home mm -hmm. um, and the places that we that we immediately frequent. So this idea of broader scale, you know, big, big C change gets to be overwhelming. We get frozen. Mm -hmm. And so the only, the, the only um, solution, I'm using air quotes here, uh, is to, to uh, be where you are and then and work from the that small place that you are whatever that is in and that sense sort of work your way out and yeah you know have smaller ripples maybe affect further on i mean in that sense i mean it's it's really a, a inquiry of how do we tend to the gods of the place right like in um 
and, and Monica Burns' book I just finished reading, uh, The Actual Star, one of the, the future timelines that I've played around with that book. Uh, everyone's become animistic again. They're nomadic, animistic culture. You know, it's, it is planetary in scale in that they have technology to roam the planet and, and be interconnected in that sense, but they're very much localized. And so that's always their question. Like, what is the god of the place asking in the context of where you're at? But as again, as a very bottom-up start with where you're at, tending to the gods of that place in relation to the whole. But you start from where you're at. Yeah. And I, I don't mean that persons cannot have a larger impact, but most of us where we to take that stance would quickly become lost. We would become frozen. Mm -hmm. And so it's to do this smaller scale work is not to do little bits, but to do anything at all. Mm -hmm. And otherwise you just, you go, Oh my God, it's, it's too much. It's too big. You know, sometimes, you know, the biggest thing you can tackle is your laundry and that is it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's a great paradoxical move. The, the small is where, great acts can be achieved, you know, in, in the sense of if you get the community in relationship with place, right? Uh, so much can be done from that, from that position. Sure. It's a place of strength and rootedness. So I, I do think as, as a whole that it, that should be our orientation, or at least when it comes to the planetary, that the move into the meta and the abstract and the metacognitive and the, the higher levels of synthesizing syntheses of reality, all that kind of stuff, like yeah. begins to we're a little thin, you know? And I think generally speaking, that's the hauntological exhaustion of, mm, of sure. the way, you know, as, as Timothy Morton says, like the West is really good at doing this move intellectually. Anything you can do, I can do meta, right? It's to sort of like yeah. scaling up and scaling up and scaling up. And that's, that's the hauntology here that we're right. talking about. That's what's exhausted itself. I think, you know, the move to go planetary, as you're saying, is to kind of make that reversal move. Uh, that I was talking about in fragments, um, but I know we we wanted to <laughs> to switch gears a little bit, um, just to touch a little bit more on this and this and the I don't know the the ghostly the and the animistic. Sure. Did we want to go into some ghost stories? It is October after I all. I will. Did we want a little bit of? I've got I've got a story or two that um, I don't know that I'd call them ghostly or, or well. I would call them weird, and then I can maybe relate it to being ghostly uh, after a point. Um, but yeah, I, I I think that having a story maybe that might be um, uh, weird or eerie or spooky mm -hmm. would certainly be appropriate. So uh, should I go first or shall you? You you go first. You go first. Start with all right. So your story. I think this qualifies as weird, given the criteria we were talking about earlier with uh, Fisher's definition. And that is that uh, one night, again, down in south southwest Florida area, uh, as few people are there, that place tends to be very strange. It's, it's got a lot of the, the, not just urban myth stuff, but there are a lot of places in it that just feel a few degrees off of where they should be. Um, so I was um, pushing home from a friend's house. I, I use a manual wheelchair. So I was pushing home from a friend's house roughly two in the morning. 
and uh, as you do. And so I'm going down the sidewalk, uh, and at this particular stretch, uh, I had to leave the sidewalk and go onto the shoulder of the road. This was a residential road, so I wasn't worried about it. It wasn't uh, wasn't busy at all, so not a big deal. And then I could hop back onto the sidewalk, no trouble. And so here I am. I'm pushing down the sidewalk or go, or down the shoulder, and I hear this uh, this sound uh, coming from somewhere, and I don't quite know what it is, but it keeps repeating itself, and it's metal grinding softly on metal. That that sound of uh, Again, maybe a, a you know a bit of sheet metal that's that's kind of just barely scraping up on against another another piece of metal, and so I hear it. Okay, they're doing its thing. All right, fine. You know, and I'm only only about two or three blocks from home, so I'm not far off. Uh, it's not a big space, so I can scream and people will hear me and all these things. Uh, I didn't have to do that, thankfully, and so. You know, I'm pushing, I'm pushing, and as I as I go on, uh, I hear the sound get closer and closer, and this scrape, 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 and um, I look behind me, and there's a green light. Okay, well, no problem. All right, things are things are what they are. Uh, green light. It's a little thing, so I'm like, okay, it must be a, you know, must be like a, a porch light of someone's house or something. Fine, not a big deal. And so I'm pushing, I'm pushing, scrape, 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 gets louder. I look back and, okay, it's someone on a bike. It's the, it's a head, headlamp or a, the, the lamp of a bike, right? It's green, fine, that's whatever. And so I'm uh, pushing still and this bike draws level with me and it's not going very fast because I'm not going particularly fast. So he draws level with me, and it's an older gentleman on the bike, and he gives me a slow head turn, one of these very measured head turns that is like unnaturally slow. He turns and he looks at me while he's pushing, and he goes, two, two, zero. 27, 2027, 20, you're going to walk. And then he turns his head real slow again. And he just keeps going real slow. And if, so at this point, I decide I'm going to like slow down a little further so that he gets a little bit further ahead. And so I let, it, let him go by. He's got a little red red tail lamp on the back of his bike. And the scrape was one of his fenders was out of place. And, you know, it's just the wheel doing what wheels do on bikes. And uh, every hair on my body, like, stood up. And I, I shivered, you know, probably pretty visibly. Realized we were in a fog bank and there was streetlights around and this kind of thing. Uh, so I let that person um, pass right on by and... I got to hear the scraping noise keep going as I kept going, and and eventually I took a side road that was earlier than than I would have normally taken, just to get me off of this person's path, uh, and I made it home obviously all right. Uh, but I should say that was one of those moments that was 
very strange, very, very, uh, what you call weird, because it was like kind of a normal thing. It was a mm-hmm. person on a bike, but it shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that, that, you hadn't told me that before, right? So this was like first time hearing it on the podcast. And that definitely sounds like that counts as a weird experience. Um, and, and might I say very Lynchian. There's something oh, David Lynch uh, yeah. about that whole yeah. scenario. The turn, the head turning, the numbers, the... Oof. Yes. That's exactly what I thought. I, mm-hmm. In fact, for a while, I told people afterward, like, hey, I, did you know I was in a David Lynch film last night? <laughs> and, you know, people would go, what do you mean? I'd tell them the story. And some people would understand that. And some people would be like, I don't get it. But, uh, you know, the, the people that I would tell that to usually would get the understand and they'd they'd be like oh that makes my skin crawl yeah how do you think i felt is is there something about like maybe more so the weird than the eerie but maybe both could be uh how is it that there are these eruptions of experience like that that do feel almost like they're out of a david lynch film that have a sort of cinematic quality to them you know i mean that seems to be part of the aesthetic of the weird that kind of eruption right where it's like, is this is this a story? Is this a dream? Is this a film that I'm suddenly in? You know? Yeah, I don't have an answer. <laughs> I mean, I'm just it's kind of just an aesthetic observation of the nature of a weird experience to yeah, be that, very Lynchian yeah. or cinematic somehow. Um, that, that there's there's almost a kind of eruption of narrative, even if it's a dreamlike narrative. Yeah. Uh, you almost feel like I'm I'm not the only one in this, and I kind of want out. But, yeah, yeah. But you're I suddenly in a story. I can't get out. Yeah. You know, there's something to be said for that. I think. Yeah, and then maybe moments of intense synchronicity are, can be quite like that too. Sure. Right? There's a sudden eruption of narrative in the world, and you're suddenly entangled in it. You don't quite know how you feel about being in the thick of it either. Mm-hmm. Um, so. That, that's a good one mine is mine is way more just like saw something strange in the woods kind of story <laughs> well i'm still in for it okay. i'm okay with that all right all right um definitely more on the, the lines of uh the paranormal kind of thing and, I, and again i don't know like as an experience in and of itself it's it is what it is and and i could prescribe um I could call it one thing or another thing, but I'll just go with the story itself. So call it the coolest version of whatever that is. The coolest version of whatever. Okay. Um, so I'm in my early twenties. I'm driving around this place, urban folklore space on Long Island, called Mount Misery. Um, it's on a road called Sweet Hollow Road. It's this very hilly area of northern Long Island, right? uh that is to begin with like in the fall and autumn kind of a spooky place it's like narrow roads not a lot of street lights and there's sort of a a, a gradual inclining hill with a lots of lots of houses on it and it's and it's it's not exactly a gated community but it's 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 well established there's a lot of old homes there and so there's no new developments going on there so there's like almost kinds of patches of farms and woods between different mm, okay. different houses so it's just a bit more rural feeling than the rest of long island being on the north shore as well and um people go there like teenagers go there college students go there to try to go see spooky things there's all sorts of urban legends that have been uh supposedly have occurred there from men in black appearances to um people hanging from the bridge to a lady dressed in white to the blood ghost hellhounds that kind of thing 
all sorts of stories. Uh, I didn't experience any of those, but my yeah. friend and I, I know, right? My friend and I had found a particular spot, which isn't, the police tend to go around there and chew off the uh, kids trying to do ghost hunting, but uh, I had found a particular spot that was really good and usually wasn't bothered by the police. So I drive up to the spot, my friend and I get out of the car, there's a patch of woods, probably a kind of park, and um, there's a trail. And I've been here a couple times at, at this point. And we're walking down this trail, and my friend uh, like pauses for a moment. And given he he may or may not have been smoking a little bit uh, of something, so you know he was a little bit more on edge than I was. Um, but he pointed out, saying he, he saw this like a maybe like a figure like walk past the trail, and and I kind of brush it off. I'm like, well might be a little uh stoned at this moment my friend so like yes okay noted but let's keep going so we go on for about another 10-15 minutes or so down this path and at this point we hear a strange pinging sound and I, the only way to describe it actually again it's a metallic sound which is an interesting weird coincidence with your story and my story um a metallic sound ringing in the middle of the woods as if somebody had taken um I don't know, like ramp, like amped up the sound of like a, a quarter dropping onto a plate or something. Just a very high pitched ping that sounds through the whole woods. And we're like, okay, that was odd. And at that point, my friend was like, I'm done. I'm done. I don't know what that was. We're in the middle of the woods. What the hell made that sound? I'm out of here. He starts walking away and, and going back the way we came. I decided to just like wait a moment and just sort of take in the quiet of the woods. I let my friend kind of walk off a little bit, get some distance, get some quiet. Um, and then I start to leave too. Nothing's happening. Uh, and it's when I turn to leave, walk maybe 15, 20 feet or so, I just get a sense of like, I should turn around again. I should just like look back. I turn around and I'll give you a, a scenario of what this looked like. So you get more of a context of, of the lighting of the place. This is Long Island. And it wasn't raining that night, but it was overcast. And in an urban environment, when it's overcast, there's a very intense, like low-grade light that casts yeah. over everything. Yes. You know, if you're in New York City, any kind of ma major metropolitan area, you don't even need a flashlight to walk around at night. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty well lit. So these woods are pretty well lit. There's no real sense of intense shadows anywhere. Um, and nevertheless, as I turn around. Uh, this maybe like 15 feet away from me where i had initially stopped uh where the pinging sound happened right um what appears to be and i'll just describe it phenomenologically like what appears to be a shadow just just kind of appears this sort of shoots up from the trail like swells and grows like it's a mushroom just pops up Whoa. and it's as tall as maybe seven or eight foot so it's like taller than That's a person giant shoulder look i don't see a head but okay. just giant broad shoulders just whoop there it appears and that in itself was like okay that's odd i'm staring straight at this thing appearing on the trail it's perfectly lit i can see very clearly and it's dark as a shadow right dark as like a dark cloud or a black cloud or mm -hmm. something and that in itself would be weird enough um or i would say eerie enough sure. right because it shouldn't have been there uh. that figure should not have been there and yet it was but in addition to that it starts to move down the trail towards me 
right? Mm -hmm. And it's at that point where I see this thing not only shoot up out of the ground, but now start to rush toward me down Mm. the trail that like everything and all my hair stands up, my stomach does a flip and I'm like, okay, I'm being chased by whatever the hell that is. So I turn around and start bolting to my friend telling him to like, let's go. Um, And it, it, it disappears. Like I turn around after running, I don't know, for like 30 seconds or so mm-hmm. just to see if it's still popping up it's gone but just that brief moment of seeing it appear up, appear from the trail and wow. then move toward me in an animalistic sense i knew something was there oh, right in wow. the most visceral sense wow. um, then it was gone right so nothing else happened that night but to me anyway that was like the most um real encounter oh, with the eerie man. you know that is wow and and afterwards, uh, just like the 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 post post mortem on that experience, like uh, I had shared it with a few local ghost hunters, and we all went out there uh, like a few weeks later, and they did their thing and ran some EVPs. Nothing came of that, but it was just that weird moment with the pinging sound, the weird figure, mm. the movement of it. My friend having maybe seen something similar, kind of anticipating an encounter that was all very strange and it has nothing to do with any of the folklore that folks usually attribute to that place um so who knows but that's that's one of my interesting weird experiences nice or eerie experiences sorry (laughs) i like it yeah and now and now my patrons and now my mutations listeners uh uh know i've come out as a believer in in I don't know. I, I don't know if I believe in the supernatural well, per se. An experiencer of the of of the odd and yes, uh, etc. An experiencer sure. of the weird and the eerie, but I think we both are. It sounds a bit like it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Any closing thoughts? We've gone for about an hour as we usually do. Uh, any conclusions and and comments? Well, as we uh, approach the what is broadly considered the spooky season in, in the Northern Hemisphere anyway. Uh, uh, if you're inclined to do it, make sure that you lock your doors and bolt your windows and clean your feet. That, that That's some uh, good suggestions there. Yeah. You never know what you might pick up on the road. Is what mm-hmm, I'm saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you once again, John, for joining Mutations podcast for a very spooky episode. Hey, thank you for having me. Always a great time.